Hello, this is Rob Hart, host of the WBBM Noon Business Hour. We wanted to make you aware of a brand new podcast hosted by the show's producer. It's called Gains with Andy Gersher. So if you're a fan of the Noon Business Hour, and especially of the experts we talk to every day, we think you'll enjoy this podcast. Give it a listen, and be sure to subscribe on the Odyssey app or Apple Podcasts today. To say we are seeing volatility in financial markets is an understatement. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Markets plunge and then come back and they do it all in a single session. And this comes as energy prices are already at multi-year highs and the Fed is dealing with record inflation. A lot going on right now and we're going to discuss. I'm Andy Gersher and this is GAINS. As mentioned, the volatility hasn't gone away, and we're bringing on Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager at Smart Portfolios out of San Diego. Check out his website, macrotides.com. So, Jim, Russia, Ukraine has dominated the headlines. We've seen the pictures on TV, a full invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So to kick off today's Gains podcast, I wanted to get your thoughts on the markets and all the volatility that we've been seeing as of late. Just crazy, crazy markets. Well, I think the the one thing I haven't heard anybody else discuss, but I'm pretty confident it did play a role, is that you know the mega cap stocks uh, in the U.S., Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, they always have tens of billions of dollars of stock buybacks that they're going to execute in the course of a year. The investment banks who actually you know, make that happen, have uh, some discretion in terms of when they execute those buybacks. And I really believe that this morning when the market opened down uh, you know, significantly, the NASDAQ 100 was down 3.3% <clears throat> and immediately began to rally, that what we saw, Andy, was the execution of significant buyback programs uh, in the mega cap stocks, and as the Qs rebounded very sharply, and within like you know five minutes of the low, um, the weighting in the Qs, the, the, you know those big stocks represent about 45 percent of the Nasdaq 100, and almost 25 percent in the S&P 500. So when you see that kind of reaction for those that are in semiconductor stocks, uh, the mega cap stocks, that kind of provides some confidence to say, you know what, I want to buy the dip, and the way those stocks are behaving, it's telling me that it's okay to jump back into the pool. And so it kind of becomes a self-feeding thing. And I think in large part what happened today was stock buybacks kind of shifted the tide, and then as the market recovered, um, you know, everybody kind of jumped on board. There was another uh, push higher that happened as President Biden began to speak, and then afterwards, and the storyline was, oh, we were all you know, uh, happy that he didn't enact even more stringent uh, sanctions. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure I buy that, but um, I believe that there was coordination at the opening. Someone in the administration, <clears throat> maybe even the Federal Reserve, worked with the large institutional uh, investment banks and executed by programs at the opening to try to limit um, 
you know, and contain, if you will, uh, the emotional response to what we all saw happen last night. That's an interesting explanation about uh, why you think uh, stocks came roaring back later in the day. That's really interesting. I didn't think about that. So you, you're saying companies, you know, obviously they buy back stock and they do it throughout the year. It just became too juicy for a lot of these companies. And they said, hey, let, you know, let's our shares are down, you know, so much. We, we you know, we see the value in our company. Let's let's put that money that we have on the sidelines. That we we're going to eventually have to buy back shares with anyway to work right now while we're getting a good deal. Yeah. And again, I, I think it's more um, I think those are standing uh, orders, if you will that the companies have with the investment banks. Oh, you mean like uh, pre-orders that they've already put in? It's kind of yeah. like, okay, we're yeah. going to buy $5 billion worth of uh, our stock back this quarter and uh, or whatever the number is. Right, <clears throat> right. But the investment banks have been told that if you see a good opportunity, uh, take advantage of price weakness uh, and execute uh, some of those uh, buybacks. So it's not like it's, oh, we're going to buy – Two percent of the buyback every other Monday, and that's the only schedule that they stick to. I'm pretty confident that the investment banks have the discretion to execute uh, buybacks uh, when it makes them look good. I mean, if they're doing buybacks and they can show that, hey, by buying back on these weekdays, we maximized your uh, buyback uh, costs uh, in terms of uh, covering more stock. Uh, you know, the firm is going to be happy if they're using that particular investment bank. So, and again, I, I remember this <laughs> in 1987 uh, when the crash took place, Greenspan and the Fed, uh, this is before corporate stock buybacks became the rage that they have in the last uh, 10, 20 years. It was unusual for stocks to do buybacks then. But many companies were, I think, given orders, in effect, or strongly encouraged to do buybacks, which is what happened on October 20th, the day after the crash. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's like using whatever bullets you have to contain a problem. And so, again, it isn't the only reason why the market recovered, but it provides that confidence. So other people look and, gee, here's a stock that I like, and it's down 20%. I think I'm going to buy some of it. And uh, when you see strength starting to show up in the mega cap stocks and so forth, and you see a rebound in the major averages, uh, it just provides that extra impetus. Uh, and then you have the piling on effect of, oh, my goodness, the market bottomed. And it's starting to run away from me. And I think that's a lot of what we saw um, today. Um, now, the reaction to some of the other markets, which we're going to get to, I'm sure, uh, one one that comes to mind that was a surprise for me was gold. Gold was actually yes. down for the day. It closed down for the day. It was up mm -hmm. earlier in the session, but actually closed down for the day. Your thoughts on gold real quick as you know, we talk about some of these other markets. Yeah. In the uh, weekly technical review that I put out earlier in the week, one of the things I wrote was that we could see gold spike up to uh, uh, 1970. Uh, 1965, because it had done that a couple times earlier, uh, uh, a year or so ago. I can't remember the exact date. Um, and then they reversed. So um, the same thing obviously happened with oil today. Traded over 100, traded down then to 92 bucks. And the reaction in the Treasury bond market uh, 
was kind of similar. So we saw some big moves in a lot of different markets, and I do think there's a message there. But you're right. Gold was uh, interesting. And, I mean, I can develop easily a scenario that this breakout um, is maybe telling us something about the rest of this year in terms of gold's potential to continue to rally. Uh, And it really goes where the Fed, if the economy weakens because gas prices go above $4 a gallon, I mean, in California, we're already paying five. Um, But the rest of the country, it was $3.54 a couple of days ago. So if you get the national ga- uh, gallon, uh, gas a gallon up to four, four and a quarter, and it stays up there, then I think potentially the economy is going to be weaker than expected. And um, that potentially, I think the Fed, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, um, will raise rates in March and May. They kind of have to. And in the meantime, they got to talk tough. But as we get out to June and July, um, depending on how the economy is performing, it's possible that the Fed may signal that they're going to slow down the pace of rate hikes because there is a negative impact uh, from you know Ukraine and the fallout from uh, higher oil prices on the U.S. economy. And then the gold market could interpret that as, wait a second, that means the Fed's going to tolerate higher inflation for longer. Now, that's how you get back up to the the all-time high of 2070, which was reached in uh, August of 2020. So that, to me, is one of the scenarios that I'm watching in terms of, okay, we got this pop, um, and then I think, you know, we get a pullback that potentially will lead to another buying opportunity and be followed by gold making a move back not only to today's spike high, but higher. And and then the Fed, you know, you mentioned the Fed, this whole situation seems to have backed the Fed in a bit of a corner. Um, they've been low to get in front of inflation. And now you have this uh, latest uh, issue with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Really tight spot for the Fed, huh, Jim? Yeah. And I think it also is influencing the kind of sanctions that the U.S. and our partners in Europe are putting on uh, Russia. We're trying to avoid doing things that would cause the price of oil to spike higher, in part because it would do damage to the economy. Um, But yes, the Fed is in a little bit of a pickle, uh, or more of a pickle than they created for themselves over the last year. Um, But I do believe that they will raise rates uh, without question at the March meeting, and in all likelihood, the May meeting. And the only thing that's going to derail subsequent uh, increases is if we see the uh, U.S. economy, you know, downshift noticeably. That's the only thing that is going to dissuade them. And again, I, I'm not in the recession camp uh, for a number of reasons, in part because U.S. consumers have more than $2 trillion worth of savings. Wage growth is really pretty good, even if a lot of it's being eroded by uh, inflation. Wages are still up a lot. And I, have, as you and I have talked since December, my expectation is we are going to see inflation tick down during the second quarter. Now, a lot of that improvement is going to be statistical because be based on year year over year. You mean yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So in February, uh, the CPI went up by uh, 35 basis points last year. Uh, but as we start to look out to the next handful of months. What we're going to see is in March of last year, the CPI was up 62 basis points 
in April 77, May 64, and June 90 basis points. So what happens to the calculations, if those replacement values are exceeded, as they were in January, the inflation rate ticks up. But I think as we get into March and especially April, May, and June, the replacement values are likely to be lower, and we're actually going to see the inflation rate drop below 7% by the time we get to June. And the markets were in a huge rush, Andy, as we saw. The Fed in December, mid-December meeting said, yeah, we're going to raise rates three times. Uh, and then Goldman, I think, in uh, late January said, well, we think they're going to do four. And then all of a sudden, everybody's at seven. It's like, oh, my God, because after we got the inflation report on February 10th, they went to seven. So to me, there's been this rush that the Fed is going to raise rates every single meeting. And I think there's the potential, if I'm right, and we see inflation dip in the second quarter, there will be the you know, opportunity. One of the firms, major firms will say, well, you know, maybe instead of seven, it'll only be six increases. And if there is some relief by mid-year in terms of more computer chips flowing, supply chains starting to ease, used car prices start to come down, which are up 40% year over year um, uh, in January, then I think someone might say, well, instead of seven, there might only be five. And, and, and if we then subsequently see additional improvement on computer chips and the supply chain and the port problems, uh, gee, inflation might even come down more. That's all it takes is a shift in perception to have markets respond. And I think, um, you know, my take all along from, you know, when we first talked in December, I was looking for a 10 to 15 percent correction in the first quarter and then a trading low, followed by a very significant rally that had the potential of taking the S&P above 5,000 and two, all, two new all-time highs. The Ukraine thing, you know, raises uh, a risk to that outlook, um, but I don't think it takes it away. So, again, I think the Fed is going to raise rates. They're going to continue to talk tough uh, about raising rates because they almost, like I said, have to. Um, and that, I think, is going to be a problem for the market. And that's why I think the low today is likely to be exceeded uh, with another decline that takes the S&P below 4,115, which was the low today, before we really see uh, a more significant trading load uh, established and subsequent rally take hold. You know, as I look at this whole entire thing, we've seen a lot of missteps here, Jim. Uh, it seems like missteps uh, on the Fed front, not getting in front of inflation, certainly missteps on the energy front. I was just thinking about this. Mm-hmm. You know, Russia exports 10.5 million barrels of oil a day. Okay. You throw like a 30, 40, $50 premium on that from what you would normally get, like yep. even six months ago. That's financing this whole operation for Russia, if you do the math, <laughs> yes. which is yeah. really sick. And then take this a little farther, those higher prices get passed on to consumers. So believe it or not, Every consumer on the planet with this risk kind of tacked on to the price of oil, they're actually financing the invasion of Ukraine. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Economy. <laughs> yeah, that's a global economy. But it just shows you and missteps where you take, uh, you know, we've really backed off production here, backed right. off some of the pipelines. That kind of, in, in a way, it seems like that put Russia even in a better position to do this. So that's a bit yes. concerning. Uh, your thoughts on that? 
No, I agree. I mean, and again, uh, with a, a person like Putin, uh, I'm not sure anything, you know, done differently in the past would have completely dissuaded him from going into Ukraine. I, you know, he's though I, I will say this, though, it's, you know, for him, he kind of likes the fact that 40 yes. percent of the natural gas that they use in, in, in these European economies right. come from Russia and they've done it all along. And, yeah. and they know so, that that is another misstep. And I've written about it, that uh, Germany has willingly made themselves very dependent on natural gas coming from uh, Russia. Um, and the net result is natural gas is about four and a half dollars in the U.S., and it's uh, the equivalent of twenty-six to twenty-eight dollars in Europe. And it reached that level back in December. So there was a huge spike up because the renewables that Europe uh, was counting on, wind and solar, didn't provide enough energy going into the winter time uh, that they needed. So the net result is Europe is using more coal. Uh, Germany went so far as in 2011, after Fukushima, they decided to close their nuclear power plants. So they went from 17 power plants, and as entering 2022, they only had three left. And I have not yet heard that they're not, they've planned to close those remaining three this year. I can't imagine to me, it's you know, kind of almost unthinkable that they wouldn't say, you know what, maybe we better off keep those things. So the green energy um, mentality so took over Germany and Europe uh, that they then created a situation where they were truly dependent on a wonderful guy named Putin. Um, so uh, tremendous missteps. And in the U.S., uh, just a couple points. I mean, after Putin went into Ukraine and Crimea and took over Crimea in 2014, we could have sent some weapons to Ukraine uh, to help them protect against Russia. Uh, but President Obama uh, w- did not favor that. Uh, President Trump did send some weapons, which was helpful. Uh, but, you know, again, none of that would have probably stopped Putin from doing what he's doing, because his grand vision is to somehow get all that used to be underneath the uh, uh, Soviet Union uh, back under the Mother Russia umbrella. And, uh, you know, he started with Crimea and now he's going after Ukraine. So there's been a lot of missteps, uh, which are always much more glaringly obvious with the benefit of hindsight. But to me, it's always what has been prior to any of this, uh, Andy, it's kind of incomprehensible to me that someone would trust someone like uh, Putin for your energy uh, dependence the way Germany has and a number of other countries in Europe. So that gave him leverage and continues to give him leverage going forward. So, you know, there was big discussion about uh, shutting Russia off from the SWIFT banking system, which allows you know, transactions between countries and companies all over the world. Um, you know, so it's kind of like the arterial system. You're talking yes. about the SWIFT system. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, if you get cut out of the SWIFT system, I mean, it's it's nearly impossible to do transactions globally. Yes. So we, I think, finally got to a place where uh, we thought it was appropriate to do that. Uh, Boris Johnson in, in Great Britain gave a speech uh, yesterday uh, supporting that. <clears throat> but lo and behold, who didn't support that was Germany. 
And again, because they have an Achilles heel in terms of the dependence on energy. So um, I'm all in favor of doing whatever we can reasonably to improve the environment and so forth. Um, but unfortunately, when ideology uh, overshadows practicality, then you do things like increasing the reliance on renewables that are by nature uh, not 100% reliable um, at the expense of, uh, okay, let's you know allow natural gas to fill this gap over the next 10 to 15 years. Let's build some nuclear power plants that which provide the cleanest energy of all. Um, but the green uh, psychology is so narrow, it precludes any reasonable or practical approach. And we're seeing that play out in Russia, or pardon me, Europe. And to a lesser extent, we've seen it play out here in the United States. I mean, the last two summers, we get power outages out here in California, not during at night, or pardon me, during the day where factories are working. It's at night when people are going home to charge their electric car and get on their phone and recharge their phone and so forth. And a part of it is, hey, guess what? California has been closing nuclear power plants uh, for a long time as well. So, again, hopefully, um, again, I don't want to have this sound like I'm against improving the environment and everything. You're At just being, time, it sounds like you're being realistic, though. I mean, if, yeah, if you're I, not I, ready, I, if we're not yeah. ready, we're not ready. I mean, and let's be smart about yeah. it. You know, and so the idea of the Green New Deal and we're getting rid of fossil fuel dependence by 2030. I mean, I'm sorry, that's just ludicrous. It's so impractical. So um, hopefully there's a lesson to be learned and that some people now will have a little bit more courage in speaking out uh, and tempering the green movement. Instead, what we have seen in the last few days is, you know, the green people are saying, oh, yeah, this just means we have to go to renewables even faster and, you know, and increase our investments and so forth. Um, so. Uh, I don't think the hardcore folks have not gotten that message whatsoever to them. It's just the opposite. You know, we haven't done enough. Um, they're not willing to look at the lesson that Germany and Europe is learning the hard way um, because, again, they have a very narrow scope in terms of the direction they think uh, the U.S. and the whole world should go. And in the meantime, coal uh, is being consumed in India and China and they are the biggest polluters and will be the biggest polluters in the next decade. And they did not sign on to any environmental agreement. So, again, to some extent, Putin sees the West, and I think Xi and China, too, as we're shooting ourselves in our foot with some of this stuff, because those guys are not going to put the environment before their own uh, interests and goals. And, Jim, for the case of Germany, it's not like they have this massive military. Uh, the only thing standing between them and Russia is our ally Poland's army. The whole thing really baffles me, Jim. Uh, so yeah. you're talking about becoming energy dependent on Russia. I I'm right there with you. Talk about, you know, blowing your foot off. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 really kind of sad. And then, you know, it, before we go to break here, too, I, you know, I just saw this before we came in. I mean, this is... You know, we're talking about the economy and money and markets and all that. But, uh, I mean, what we're seeing on uh, television is just devastating. And, and, and as I was coming in, Ukraine, all Ukrainian men between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country. 
They have to stay and fight. And that kind of shows you how desperate things are on the ground in Ukraine. And and what's going on here is is very, very unfortunate. All right, we're going to talk about plays and where the market's going on the other side of the break. But real quick, hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If that's an option for you, please do that. And then, as always, subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new episode drops. We will be right back with Jim talking about plays, market direction, right after this break. All right, we're back with Jim Welch, macro strategist and portfolio manager at Smart Portfolios in San Diego. His website, macrotides.com. Jim, uh, you know, if you have any plugs for the gains listeners, uh, go ahead and throw them out there. I did send out a special update to those who subscribe to my my letters uh, today uh, while the market was still trading uh, with some of the analysis that you and I have spoken about. But I'd be happy to send that plus uh, this week's weekly technical review to anyone who sends me an email uh, requesting one, jimwelshmacro at gmail.com. Really appreciate uh, you sharing uh, some of that additional information with the uh, Gaines um, Nation. (laughs) I like that, Gaines Nation. So anyway, uh, you know, let's talk market direction. One thing I wanted to bounce off you right away. I'm a big believer. I'm a disciple of the Dow theory, and mm-hmm. the Dow theory just turned bearish. That was yeah. uh, on the close the other day. Does does that indicate anything for you? Uh, do you, do you follow the Dow theory, and uh, do you uh, give it any weight now that it's turned bearish? I I do give it some weight. Uh, I would I don't want to say not a lot of weight. There's other things I would say I give more weight to both technically and then fundamentally. And so technically, the price pattern from the, of the decline since it, uh, the S&P topped at 48.18, to me suggests that we were going to see a bounce and then another decline below the low of today. And I would suggest that uh, if that unfolds as expected, that listeners should put some money to work uh, if and when the S&P does, in fact, drop below 4115. Um, even if we are in a bear market, which the Dow theory um, has, in a sense, indicated, uh, we're likely to see a fairly significant rally, whether the S&P bottoms at 4000, which has been one of the price targets I've had for uh, a number of weeks, uh, or even down as low as 3800. I think the odds would subsequently favor the S&P rallying to 4,400 to 4,500, even if we're going to be in a bear market. And uh, so if you're buying under 4,100, there should be a window of opportunity of profit uh, subsequently, even if the S&P drops a little bit more. I'm not in the recession camp. If you look historically, Andy, uh, the average decline, if you don't go into recession, is about 15% going back to, I think it was 1965. But if you go into a recession, it's north of 30%. So I'm not in the recession camp. I still think the savings rate, the Fed isn't going to you know, push the economy over a cliff. Uh, but obviously, events out of its control and what's going on with oil prices and so forth do pose a risk. So I'm still 
of the mind that the economy isn't going to into a recession, uh, that this decline is a buying opportunity for at least at a minimum, a really pretty good rally back towards 4,500, maybe 4,600. And I still lean in favor of the idea that the S&P could rally above 5,000 in the second half of this year. As, um, as I said earlier, uh, the potential that people start dialing back from seven rate hikes this year to six or five, if inflation indeed um, drops off in the second quarter. And my guess is that it could decline by at least a percent from a peak that I think is going to happen uh, on March 10th when the Labor Department reports the CPI for February. I think there's a chance the February CPI, Andy, could hit 8%. At a minimum, I think it definitely will be higher than 7.5%. As I mentioned earlier, the takeaway value from February of last year is 35 basis points. Uh, Energy, gasoline prices at the end of February are 57% higher than they were at the end of February last year. And uh, gasoline represents 4% of the CPI. So that means gasoline potentially will add 2.2% to whatever the CPI is. In January, it added 1.6%. So I think we're going to see the CPI deliver some bad news when it gets released on March 10th. The Fed meets on March 16th. If I'm right, I think that's one of the headwinds that the market is going to face so that we could see this rally that started today move into maybe the middle of next week or so. And then I think the market's going to roll over and head down because the reality is the Fed is going to move to remove, you know, accommodation, raise interest rates. And that CPI report, I think, is going to be potentially, it might have an eight handle, uh, which will only increase angst. Um, So that's my outlook is that I think, the S&P will drop below 41.15. As you know, I was expecting the S&P to drop below 42.23 uh, for weeks. And, you know, obviously it happened today. Um, and I think the pattern actually is very similar to what I saw at the lows of January 24th. So um, this is the first time I'm recommending that if it does drop below 41.15, that, you know, listeners should put some money to work. Um, and again, since my outlook is for rates uh, and the pressure on rates from the Fed to ease off a little bit by mid-year. I would allocate a portion back into the high growth stocks, the high PE stocks, because those are the stocks that have gotten hit pretty hard uh, because of rates going up and the perception that the Fed is going to raise rates, you know, every meeting for the balance of 2022. So my, you know, that would be one place to uh, put some money, look at semiconductors, look at technology, um, because they will benefit if I'm right about, uh, you know, the Fed maybe just the perception that the Fed may not have to raise rates seven times in 2022 and yields coming down a little bit should take some of the downside pressure we've seen on those on the tech stocks. Do you like some of those sexier, higher beta names that have really been taken to the woodshed? Um, only for a quick rally. You know, that's the problem. You know, the high P, the really high PE that are selling at multiples of sales as opposed to multiples of actual earnings, they're going to have a heck of a snapback rally, but it'll run out of gas quickly uh, because they really don't have legitimate legs to stand on. 
Um, but, you know, Apple and Microsoft and Google, uh, those are real companies, and uh, those are the kind of stocks that I think definitely uh, will have a sustainable rebound, especially if I'm right about the S&P ultimately going to new all-time highs. That ain't going to happen unless those stocks are, you know, uh, participating in a, you know, pretty high level. So, and you would be aggressively buying below that 4,115 level, you said? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if you've got, you know, put half of the money to work. If you, whatever cash you have, put half of it on a drop below 4,115. And then hopefully you and I will have some additional conversations in, in the next coming weeks and months. Um, and there'll be some parameters that I'll be able to provide in terms of, okay, you put fit. Now, uh, back in January, in the January 24th weekly technical review, I suggested people put some money to work as the S&P got below 42.23, uh, 41.75, and 41.25. And obviously at the opening this morning uh, at 41.16, it triggered all, all three of those. Now, that's sometimes, sometimes it's, you know, a little luck doesn't hurt, and that's kind of what happened. Uh, I thought the market would work its way down over a period of days as opposed to, you know, a gap lower of 110 S&P points. Um, but that's, to me, the idea is when you get to a point where sentiment gets to be pretty negative, uh, the market's really oversold, that you put some money incrementally into the market uh, on weakness. And, um, you know, that's, again, the, why the, and the logic behind, hey, get below 4115 put some more money to work. Are you willing to short the market to that level? We Our last episode, which the timing on that was really actually pretty good, um, our last gains episode, we talked about shorting the market. Um, is that something that you would do as well, is short the market, maybe even using one of those short ETFs, um, on the way down to that 4,115 level? No, because that that requires a level of trading expertise, you know, where you're sitting in front of the screen during the day um, that most people cannot do. What I am waiting for is if indeed it turns out like, okay, we're going into a bear market. What typically has happened, I have a technical indicator that I developed called the major trend indicator. And historically what happens, Andy, it drops below a certain threshold that says, okay, there's a good chance we're in a bear market. Uh, that happens typically when the market has already become very oversold. Then there's a rally. If the next rally doesn't take that indicator back to the bull market camp and it rolls over, that is the place that I would recommend uh, going short. Because typically what that means, you're about to go into uh, a very meaningful decline. You know, In other words, right. wave the one down of- happened, wave two bounce failed, and now you're about to go into wave three to the downside which is typically where some of the most intense selling pressure shows up. So I'm not there yet. I'm going to wait until we get that you know, larger snapback rally and just see, is it a bounce uh, within the context of a bear market? Or, as I, again, continue to believe, we are going to see the S&P rally to new all-time highs. Um, but we don't have to make that decision today. Um, so, no, I would not uh, suggest, you know, just because the volatility is so high, things are happening within a very short period of time, you know, so time compression is a big deal, as speaks, we saw today. Speaks to, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, speaks to the uh, what we saw today. I, I, I could imagine that if this was happening 10, 20, 30 years ago, what we saw today would have happened over like a week. Yeah, 
or longer yeah. or longer. You know? So, um, yeah. So again, what you want to try to do is if I'm right, and the S&P does rally to 45, 4,600 and then starts to roll over. My major trend indicator also rolls over. Um, you know, what that would suggest is, okay, uh, the S&P went from 4,800 down to, let's call it 4,000, just to make the numbers round. Um, so if it rallied back to 4,600, my expectation was, okay, you're about to see an 800-point decline in the S&P down to 3,800 at a minimum. So that's a good place to be short if everything in, you know evolves in that manner. Uh, not trying to squeeze the last 100 or 150 points out. Gee, we're at 4350. Maybe it'll drop to under 4100. It's just to me the tactical benefit just isn't big enough to recommend going short because we, as we saw today, it's quick. Anybody who was short, uh, unless you were very quick on the draw, you saw a lot of whatever gains you had uh, dissipate pretty quickly. Is Treasury yields? Yes. That's a trade that we. The inverse Treasury yield is a trade that we've had on. Uh, yep. Where do you see Treasury yields? Mm-hmm. Do you unwind? That trade that we talked about at the beginning of the year, the inverse on the Treasury yield. Well, that would have probably gotten stopped out either yesterday or uh, today, Andy. I can't remember. I basically said take a use a trailing stop below prior lows. And between yesterday and today, I know we took out a prior low. Um, so if anybody was following that and using that advice, um, they would have gotten stopped out. Vehicle um, result. Uh, on uh, February 11th at 17.03, and it traded below that on uh, February 22nd. So what I'm anticipating, Andy, if I'm right about how things are going to play out with inflation, the run-up to the Fed meeting on March 16th, I think we're going to see bond yields go back up one more new high above the recent highs. And then I think we're going to see a fairly significant rally. So I'm waiting I think the better trade is waiting for the <laughs> treasuries to give a, a buy signal to go long. Um, it's counterintuitive, but again, my thesis here is that we're going to see um, inflation improve in the second quarter. Uh, the positioning, there's huge short positions in treasury bonds. So everyone's looking for seven rate hikes. Two year has to go up, <clears throat> the 10 year yield has to go up. And I just think it's time to kind of play, go against the grain on that. Um, but uh, you have to wait for the tenure to get up near or exceeding uh, the, the high that we've seen in the last, you know, four or five days um, before I would look to do that. So to me right now, we're kind of in no man's land in that, okay, uh, when we talked uh, a couple months ago, it was like, okay, buy the inverse bond ETF. I think it was trading around $16 a share. And as I said, uh, the stop would have been triggered at 1703 not a bad trade. Now we just have to be patient <clears throat> and wait for the next trade to to uh, develop. And I think that's going to take, you know, at least another two to three weeks. For the gains listeners who have some dry powder, um, realize that you make the big long-term gains by buying when the market's down and when things look chaotic and unclear. That's often when you make Hey, you hold your nose, you buy stocks. Uh, yep. Let's just say S&P dumps b- below that 4,100 mark you were talking yeah. about. Uh, and you said, okay, we'll take half of your cash. What's, like, give me, I know we'll talk to the sector level. And you, you, you mm-hmm. touched upon it a little bit. That happens. We break through. 
Um, what are you buying with that 50% again? I would not buy energy. I would not buy financials. Um, have they have they uh, ran their course? Uh, speaking of energy and financials, I real think quick. over the next few months, yes. Yeah, <clears throat> I, mean, I, they, I think we could see oil prices come down a bit more. Um, and if I'm right about bond yields ticking down, and you know, instead of seven rate hooks, we, people start talking. And again, this is like three months from now, uh, maybe only six or five. I don't think the financials are going to be well served by that. Um, so the, the area that I'm looking at is emerging markets. Um, and EEM is that ETF um, because those that sector has been kind of punished um, and is down pretty significantly from its high in early of last year. Uh, I would look at South Korea as another place to look at. Um, Brazil, um, too? You like Brazil, don't you? I like Brazil, but I think it's, it's responded to the run-up in oil prices, Andy, right. and I think it's a little overdone. Okay. So if I'm right about a pullback in energy prices, Brazil, let's say, has bottomed, and it's had wave one up, and then I think we're at a point where we're going to see a wave two pullback. And it, it, that would be the time that I'll, I'll get interested in terms of saying, okay, um, uh, you know, I'm making up a number. Let's say uh, Brazil was up five bucks just to make it round and simple. Uh, if it pulled back two to two fifty, that would be to me a potentially interesting uh, place to look at Brazil. But near term, I think if we see that drop below forty one hundred, there should be some additional weakness in emerging markets, uh, South Korea, and I think those are two areas that you can buy. Um, because I, I think they, they're, they've underperformed the S&P by so much for so long that a regression to the mean move is coming so that there will be a window of time when those sectors outperform the S&P. Um, How about domestically, I, though? Uh, if, you know, for us who like that domestic exposure, what emerging markets seems like a really good play and we're going to back up uh, banks and financial or uh, financials and banks. And you said yep. oil. Um, so what domestically would you be buying sector sector wise? Well, uh, two sectors come to mind. Uh, the small caps, they have been underperforming since February of last year uh, by a wide margin. And the same thing that I said about South Korea holds true for the uh, the small cap stocks, uh, I would go with IJR as opposed to IWM because uh, historically IJR outperforms uh, IWM. Uh, they're both small cap exposure, but um, IJR has is, is historically done better. Um, so small caps because, again, they've underperformed so much uh, for so long. The other sector is biotechnology that has absolutely been slaughtered. Uh, over the last year. Um, so these, at this point in time, are contrarian plays um, because they've been beaten up so much. If and when, uh, you know, things unfold where it looks like, yep, we are going to get a rally to new all-time highs, at that point in time, I'll be able to evaluate all the sectors and be able to say, okay, these are the sectors that are going to participate and maybe even lead the, lead the charge to new all-time highs. Right now, um, you know, all I can look at is the candidates that I think are best positioned, and predominantly those are the ones that have gotten beat up a lot. You know, you, you, you mentioned IJR, iShares Core S&P Small Cap. Um, 
do you, do you like Russell as well? Do you like? I mean, that's yeah, very similar. Russell two thousand. Yes, but, but you really like this IJR to get that small cap exposure. I, I think it's just a better vehicle. Uh, you know, the small cap uh, area um, is likely to rally. Whether an IWM will rally, IJR will rally. Historically, IJR has delivered better performance. So it's kind of like, okay, 90%, whether you buy IWM or IJR, no problem. But that extra 10%, I think you get, um, will come from IJR. In the commodity space, you said stay yeah. away from oil potentially. Yeah. But, you know, there's gold and some other commodities out there that could, you know, maybe be poised for a, a run higher. Your thoughts on that real quick? Yeah. Um, you know, we had talked, you know, about uranium. And I really like what how uranium, that ETF, performed. It was actually up yesterday. It was up this morning when the market was down a whole bunch. Um, and it had a pretty strong day today. And I think, as we talked earlier, about the world maybe waking up to the uh, good attributes of nuclear power and how it can really help, uh, you know, generate good, clean energy that is reliable, that I think potentially uh, what's happening in Europe is going to continue to benefit uh, uranium. So that hit a high of $31 uh, uh, in the last year, and it's trading under 22 I, I think there's a good shot, Andy, that it will make a run up towards that $31 high. Now, I also have to say, this is really volatile stuff, and it's not for the faint of heart. Um, which is so. perfect for the gains listener, by the way. Yeah. That URA, <laughs> which is, you're talking about, is the Global X Uranium ETF. Uh, again, that ticker's URA. That's actually perfect for the uh, gains listener. Talking about vo- um Something with a lot of volatility. You you mentioned biotech. My final yeah. question for you is: How do you get exposure in the in that biotech space that you uh, think is getting you a little juicy choices. right now? Uh, I B B I boy boy or X B I. They both are in the biotech space, um, and they do trade similarly. Um, I would probably lean toward XBI uh, more than IBB. And, and again, the IBB, IBB is the iShares NASDAQ Biotechnology. Um, so the ticker on that, again, is IBB. And what was the other ticker? I, or, uh, XBI. XBI, I'm pulling that up. And that's the Spider S&P Biotech ETF, XBI. So those are the uh, two that you would suggest to get exposure in biotech. And again, all these moves are with an S&P below that 4115 level. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, You know, as we wrap up today's Gains podcast, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Parting shots here. Anything else that you want to get across, Jim? Well, uh, it's an understatement to say that things are going to be pretty volatile. Um, but that's why it's important to have a disciplined approach. And again, I'll put a pitch out there that if you're not familiar with technical analysis, you should pick up a book and learn about it. It may take you five years. It may take you 10 years to kind of really be comfortable and knowledgeable, but it's kind of like you looking at a puzzle. And if you are missing a big chunk of the puzzle, it's tougher to see the whole picture. And to me, the combination of fundamental analysis 
and technical analysis uh, is the only way to truly get a handle on what's going on in the market. So, you know, as we've talked, the price pattern suggested the S&P would drop below 42.23. It did. I think there's another leg down coming, and it ties in with what fundamentally I think monetary policy and the Fed is going to be doing over the next two to three weeks prior to their uh, mid-March meeting on uh, the 16th. So that, to me, is how uh, you know putting these two pieces together uh, gives me a greater conviction to be able to say, okay, you get below 41.15, it's time to put some work money to work. Just as I said in my January 24th letter, you get below 41.75, you put some money to work. You know, scale in. It just so happened that it all happened on the opening this morning. Um, but again, the idea here is to look out ahead of everybody else, if possible. And everyone was slow about, you know, the inflation problem, Andy. They wanted to believe that Powell would be right. Now, all of a sudden, we've seen this huge shift from three rate hikes in mid-December to now seven, less than two months later. You know, I just think too many people have joined that bandwagon. It's time to look to fade that story. Um, And I think, you know, the the time of that will happen before the end of March, where I think the bottom will be in um, and, you know, we'll have a better opportunity in terms of upside action in the stock market. Often, it seems with financial markets, perception becomes reality. Hey, thanks. It's Jim Welsh, macro strategist and portfolio manager at Smart Portfolios in San Diego, California. Uh, website, macrotides.com. And Jim, real quick, uh, for the gains listeners, if they want to reach out, give us Jim the... Jim Welsh, macro, M-A-C-R-O at gmail.com. And that's Welsh spelled W E L. S-H. All right, hey, uh, thanks again, Jim. We'll be sure to have you on as we move along here. Terrific, Andy. Thanks so much, and uh, good luck to everyone in the next handful of weeks. So thanks for listening. We're back on Tuesday, and I will see you then. A News Radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey.